This episode of the Daily 202 Podcast is brought to you by Facebook. At Facebook, we've taken critical steps to prepare for the U.S. elections. We've more than tripled our safety and security teams, implemented five-step ad verification, and launched a new voting information center. Learn more at facebook.com slash about slash elections. Good morning. I'm James Holman from The Washington Post, and this is the Daily 202 for Monday, August 24th. In today's news, more than 500,000 mail-in ballots were rejected in the primaries. This could make the difference in battleground states this fall. Kellyanne Conway is leaving the White House after this week's Republican convention. And video shows Wisconsin police shooting a black man multiple times in front of his three kids. But first, the big idea. President Trump announced Sunday that he had helped break through what he called a regulatory logjam to grant emergency authorization of convalescent plasma to treat COVID-19. He described it as a powerful therapy that he claimed has an incredible rate of success. The announcement at a news conference where Trump was flanked by FDA Commissioner Steve Hahn and Health and Human Services Secretary Alex Azar drew criticism from physicians and scientists who said their statements misled the public by overstating the evidence behind a therapy that shows promise but still needs to be rigorously tested. The Infectious Disease Society of America released a statement noting that while there are some positive signals that convalescent plasma can be helpful in treating individuals with COVID, the society believes its benefits need to be demonstrated in clinical trials that randomly assign patients to receive either plasma or a placebo before it is authorized for wider use. A Trump administration official says this announcement followed two weeks of insane internal fights. The person said that Trump held more conversations on the issue Saturday before making the announcement Sunday. Some scientists at the National Institutes of Health have argued that the efficacy data is not strong enough. At the briefing last night, Hahn struck a more measured tone than Trump, stating that convalescent therapy, in which the yellowish liquid portion of blood is taken from recovered patients and transfused into ill people, had met the standard for emergency authorization, which is a lower standard than full approval. While the treatment may have met the FDA's authorization standard, that it may be effective and appear safe, outside scientists said the administration officials who touted a 35% reduction in death risks to non-elderly patients who are breathing on their own were overstating the conclusions that can be drawn from studies without comparison groups. Trump has been putting extraordinary pressure on federal agencies to test and approve treatments and a vaccine against the coronavirus, which has now killed more than 173,000 Americans. This announcement came a day after the president, without evidence, accused the FDA of impeding enrollment in clinical trials for coronavirus vaccines and treatments for political reasons. Trump is also now considering bypassing basic safety standards to fast-track a U.K. vaccine ahead of the election. The vaccine, which is being developed in partnership between AstraZeneca and Oxford University, would be given emergency use authorization in October. While all this is happening, and it's important, millions of our fellow Americans are falling deep into financial crisis as federal stimulus and safety nets vanish. Major recessions are always especially fraught for low-income earners whose finances can veer from tenuous to dire with just one missed paycheck. But as the economy cratered this spring, economists and poverty experts were mildly surprised to discover that the torrent of government support that followed, particularly the $600 a week in week in expanded unemployment benefits and that one-time $1,200 stimulus check, likely lowered the overall poverty rate. In fact, 
17 million people would have dropped below the poverty line without the $500 billion in direct intervention for American families. Now, though, data show those gains are eroding as federal inaction deprives Americans on the financial margins of additional support. If the unemployment rate stays around 10% and no new stimulus is delivered, economists say we can expect poverty rates to climb higher than those observed at the depths of the Great Recession. The poverty threshold for a family of four in America is $26,000 and 200 bucks a year. Data collected by the Census Bureau show the financial pain. For the last week, we have numbers. Roughly 29 million U.S. adults, about 12.1% of the population, said their households sometimes or often did not have enough to eat during the preceding seven days. About 22% of the U.S. population has been food insecure since the pandemic began in March. For mothers with children 12 and younger, the figure is more than 40%. 40%. Increased flexibility in the Supplemental Nutrition Assistance Program, which provides food stamps, fueled an unprecedented spike in SNAP enrollment. From March through April, 6 million people became newly eligible for food stamps, But the Trump administration has recently decided against extending a food stamps waiver that allowed needy families to bypass certification, such as providing pay stubs. This move will reduce the number of eligible families in the coming months, just as other stimulus measures also expire as well. Struggling people are raising rent money on GoFundMe pages. We're asking for help with groceries on Facebook Marketplace. In New Orleans this weekend, there was a sit-in staged in front of a courthouse to block eviction hearings with signs urging the local government to cancel rent. One of the signs said, you can't wash your hands if you don't have a sink. My colleagues Hannah Denham and Taylor Telford today tell the story of Karen Smith. Karen's 52, and she lives in Jupiter, Florida. She recently opened the two-bedroom townhouse she lives in with her 13-year-old son to a fellow single mom with a daughter. They're all facing eviction, much like the 22 million other Americans who are currently behind on their rent. Despite the federal moratorium that ended July 24th, some landlords are raising rent, issuing late fees, and initiating eviction proceedings earlier than the federal deadline, which requires 30 days' notice for eviction. Karen lost her job as a U.S. Department of Education contractor on March 14th and told her landlord right away that the $1,650 a month in rent would be a struggle. The landlord initially agreed to a payment schedule, then on April 2nd, told Karen that she would be evicted if she was even one day late. Since then, Karen and her son, who has Ehlers-Danlos Syndrome, which affects connective tissue, have been living on food stamps and unemployment benefits that didn't arrive until May. The state jobless aid started at 125 bucks a week and was recently bumped to 225 She was earning $96,000 a year before, but as a single mom with tens of thousands in student loans, health insurance premiums, and other expenses— She didn't have a lot of savings. Although Karen has a Ph.D. in educational psychology, she hasn't been able to find a job in her field, and a minimum wage position wouldn't cover the rent. When September 1st rolls around, that's just next week, she doesn't know what the four of them will do. The same goes for their two cats and two dogs, which were taken in from others who have already been evicted. Her son has been urging her to start selling household items to save up for a used mobile home. Karen said he's been pressing her ever since he read that Walmart allows RVs to park in its lots for free. She said she now knows why her great-grandmother never wanted to talk about the Spanish flu 
When this is over, she said, none of us will ever want to talk about it. And that's the big idea. Here are three other headlines that should be on your radar as we start the week. Number one, more than 534,000 mail ballots were rejected during this year's primaries across 23 states. Nearly a quarter of those were in key battleground states for this fall, illustrating how missed delivery deadlines, inadvertent mistakes, and uneven enforcement of the rules could disenfranchise voters and affect the outcome of the presidential election. The rates of rejection, which in some states exceed those of other recent elections, could make a difference in the fall if the White House contest is decided by a close margin, as it was in 2016, when Donald Trump won Michigan, Pennsylvania, and Wisconsin by roughly 80,000 votes. This year, according to tabulations by my colleague Elise Vebeck, election officials in those three states tossed out more than 60,480 ballots just during the primaries, which saw a significant lower turnout than what would be expected in a general election. Rejection figures include ballots that arrived too late to be counted or were invalidated for another reason, including voter error. Michigan Secretary of State Jocelyn Benson, a Democrat, predicted that the number of rejected ballots in her state could double in November compared with the primary when 10,694 votes were disqualified. Now, Trump won Michigan in 2016 by 10,704 votes. Benson noted recently that black, brown, and Asian American communities in the state see much higher rates of ballot rejection. Number two, Kellyanne Conway, the senior advisor to Trump and one of his longest serving aides, is leaving the White House at the end of this month. Conway, whose title is counselor to the president, was Trump's third campaign manager in 2016 and the first woman to successfully manage a presidential bid to victory. She joined the White House at the start of the term and has been one of the most visible and vocal defenders ever since. She informed Trump of her decision late last night in the Oval Office. Her husband, George Conway, a conservative lawyer and outspoken critic of the president, is also stepping back from his role on the Lincoln Project, an outside group of Republicans devoted to defeating Trump in November. He will also take a hiatus from Twitter, the venue he's most often used to attack the president. Kellyanne says that she and George were making this decision based on what they think is best for their four children. Their high school daughter has drawn attention recently for tweets about her parents and politics. On Sunday, however, she also tweeted that social media was becoming, quote, way too much, so she had decided to take a, as she called it, mental health break. Conway's announcement comes on the eve of the Republican National Convention, which starts tonight. Trump's flying down to Charlotte, and he's seeking to gain some momentum for a tough re-election battle ahead. Conway has been intimately involved in convention planning, and she's going to speak Wednesday night on the theme of everyday heroes. She spent Saturday at campaign headquarters in her personal capacity. George and Kellyanne became an object of fascination as he ramped up his criticism of the president while she remained a loyal advisor. George has written, among other things, that Trump is mentally unfit to be president. The president has often voiced anger at him and his comments, calling him a stone-cold loser and the husband from hell. Before making her decision, Conway had been in discussions with the Trump campaign. Senior advisors had suggested she take a leave of absence from the White House to join the re-election effort and wanted her to travel to two states a day between now and the election. But she says she could not envision herself in that role right now, spending too much time away from her kids in this hour of need. Number three. The video starts as Jacob Blake rounds the front of a silver SUV on Sunday around 5 o'clock p.m., 
with two Kenosha, Wisconsin police officers following close behind, their guns drawn. When Blake opens the door and steps inside, the officers suddenly fire repeatedly toward his back at least seven times. Blake is now in serious condition. The officers have been placed on leave, and the city of Kenosha declared an emergency curfew after destructive protests rocked the city into the early hours of this morning. This is the latest case of police violence caught on camera in a summer overwhelmed by escalating rounds of protests following George Floyd's death in Minneapolis. Wisconsin Governor Tony Evers, a Democrat, called for greater police accountability as the video spread rapidly through social media. Officers were responding to a domestic incident, according to police. Witnesses told the Kenosha News that Blake was trying to break up a fight and that police first attempted to taser him. The video shows neighbors congregating outside as two police officers with their guns drawn follow Blake as he approached his car. As Blake opened the driver's side door, an officer can be seen tugging at his white tank top before multiple shots ring out. The Kenosha News reports that Blake was shot in front of his children. Ben Crump, a civil rights attorney, says Blake's three sons were sitting inside the car and watching. Police have not commented on what led them to shoot. Finally, in addition to that... There are two natural disasters that we're keeping close tabs on. The northern Gulf Coast is bracing for a rare one-two hurricane punch as tropical storms Laura and Marco set their sights between Louisiana and East Texas. Marco is predicted to scrape the Louisiana coastline on Monday and is the most immediate threat. Hurricane warnings are posted from Morgan City in south-central Louisiana to the mouth of the Pearl River between New Orleans and Gulfport, Mississippi. A tropical storm warning is up to the west from south of Lake Charles to Morgan City. A storm surge warning has been raised from Morgan City east to near Biloxi, Mississippi, where ocean water could rise up to six feet above normally dry land. Grand Isle in far southeastern Louisiana is under a mandatory evacuation order. Downtown New Orleans is under a hurricane watch and a tropical storm warning. Two different warnings because of two different storms. The city will probably contend with tropical storm force winds and heavy rains, which could cause flash floodings. The city's levee system should protect it from the predicted surge, although we've heard that before. After Marco drifts inland, Laura will follow late Wednesday or early Thursday. Parts of Louisiana could be affected by the storms twice in three days. There's no recorded precedent for this. Compared with predictions on Saturday, the track forecast for Laura has shifted west, increasing the threat for western Louisiana and eastern Texas, and decreasing but not eliminating the threat for New Orleans. Houston needs to pay particularly close attention to Laura. Looking west, those fires in California have now burned more than 1.1 million acres in just nine days, making their footprint larger than the entire state of Rhode Island. Californians are bracing for more lightning today that could spark ferocious new blazes as wildfires nearing record size continue to burn largely uncontained. In a little more than a week, storms have set off hundreds of fires and given rise to the second and third largest blazes in the state's history. The fires have prompted the evacuation of more than 100,000 Californians and fouled the air quality, not just across California, but as far away as the Midwest. Thunderstorms are anticipated Monday as moisture from what was once Hurricane Genevieve streams northeastward, where it will encounter intense August heat over central and northern California. The storms are expected to produce lightning strikes but little rain, which, given the extremely dry vegetation at the tail end of the summer dry season, is capable of touching off new fires. Sadly, 
Raging fires and columns of smoke aren't the only threats facing the thousands of firefighters working around the clock. This weekend, a firefighter in Santa Cruz returned to his work car after hours on the front lines of a literal firefight to find that his wallet had been stolen. When he checked with his bank, he learned that his whole account had been drained. He had nothing left. What kind of sick monster would do something like that? A cadre of morally bankrupt thieves have been seizing on the evacuations in the Golden State to break into empty homes and abandoned vehicles. Sheriffs say there are a lot of reports that a lot of looting is going on. This is a sad reminder that while the last few months have brought out the best in a lot of people, people like you, the cascading crises enveloping our country have also brought out the worst and many more. And that's The Daily 202 for Monday, August 24th. Thanks for listening. It's a new week, and you may have noticed we have a new logo. It's a fresh face for the podcast. But this show will always be your go-to place for the news and analysis you need to know every morning. I'm James Holman. I'll talk to you tomorrow. This episode of the Daily 202 podcast is brought to you by Facebook. At Facebook, we've taken critical steps to prepare for the U.S. elections. We've more than tripled our safety and security teams, implemented five-step ad verification, and launched a new voting information center. Learn more at facebook.com slash about slash elections.